0: based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 7th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we take a close look at the role of birth and development in autism. And David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aas.org. There is no one underlying cause of autism spectrum disorders. Rather, autism appears to spring from genetic, environmental, and developmental factors. In a report this week, Ezekiel Benari and colleagues examined the disruption of an important developmental sequence in the brain during birth. I spoke to him about his study looking at how to prevent this disruption in rodent models of autism.
1: The study in science shows that a crucial reaction during delivery is abolished in two animal models of autism. It also shows that correcting this with a diuretic before delivery or during delivery corrects or attenuates the autistic syndrome.
0: So why don't you just talk about some of the major events that happen in the brain during birth? What is a GABA switch, for example?
1: During delivery, oxytocin triggers an abrupt reduction of chloride and GABA becomes very, very strongly inhibitory. And this, we showed, is important for protective reasons, and all sort of other reasons. So this reaction is now well-accepted by everybody, and it's an important signature of delivery. And it's important because delivery is a very stressful moment for the baby.
0: So before this study, what was known about the relationship between oxytocin delivery and autism?
1: Okay, between oxytocin and delivery, uh, well, what was known, of course, is that oxytocin triggers labor. Right oxytocin also triggers a GABA switch during delivery. Now, the link between oxytocin and autism, the only indications which were recently pushed a lot were the use of oxytocin in attenuating the syndromes of autism in adults and children. And this has been now used by a variety of labs in clinical trials, and it has shown a ameliorating effect.
0: Right. And so for here, in this study, you looked at two different models of autism in rodents. How were these good models, and what are some of the drawbacks?
1: One model is the Fragile X model. It's a genetic model of mouse in which you have the same mutation as humans having autism. The kids having this mutation are autistic, and it's the most frequent genetic form of autism. And these mice behave in an autistic manner in terms of social interaction and so forth. So that's relatively valid. The second model is injecting in utero a drug called valproate, which was given to women having epilepsies when they're pregnant until they discovered that kids could become autistic, and this has been stopped since then. So I mean, the two are relevant to humans. But of course, mice are not men. The basic mechanisms are very common. But the signatures of autism in mice and men are not the same because, you know, it's not easy to follow visual communication and to talk with the mouse.
0: Right. So there are several different messages that can be taken away from the work that you're doing here.
1: So in this paper, now in science, we show that this reaction, this protective reduction of chloride during delivery, fails completely. So delivery is not accompanied in these two animal models with a reduction of chloride. Chloride remains elevated, and this leads to aberrant excessive electrical activity in the brain of these mice. Now this is important because we show here that autistic neurons indeed have elevated chloride. The first thing this does is that it validates our clinical trials we have been publishing and we're doing more on this now, in which we're showing that giving a diuretic, a special diuretic, that reduces intercellular chloride in neurons and in the kidney, that's why it's diuretic. Ameliorates or attenuates the severity of the of autistic syndrome in children. But of course, this did not demonstrate that the actions are indeed due to elevated chloride, because this, of course, cannot be done in humans. So, what remained to be shown is indeed that neurons in autism have elevated chloride and that acute administration of diuretic reduces these signatures. In other words, chloride is reduced, and incidentally, oxytocin does exactly the same. There is perhaps an even more important message. Since the reaction during delivery seems to be important and is abolished in autism, I then reason that perhaps giving something before delivery or during delivery might have a priming long-term consequence on the offsprings. So what we did here was to take the same two animal models of autism and to give the diuretic to the mother roughly 24 hours before and during delivery. And we showed that in the offsprings, we recuperate normal chloride, not only during delivery, but two, three, four weeks later. So if chloride is low during delivery, you keep this for a significant amount of time, Mm -hmm. and then we showed that the other criteria, which are both physiological, electrical activity, and so forth, and behavioral, are also attenuated in the offsprings by treating the mothers with the diuretic. And, of course, the interesting thing of this is that oxytocin and the diuretic are the two main drugs presently being tested to treat autistic children. Mm -hmm. So it's suggesting that both actually have the same mechanism, chloride reduction.
0: You administered these drugs to the mother before delivery. But is that a practical thing to do, say, in humans, or is this more just to look at the details of the physiology?
1: It's difficult to answer this, because in theory, giving to pregnant mothers a diuretic, I'm not an obstetrician, I mean, I'm not the expert to answer these questions, but... It's very unlikely to be a very good idea because delivery is very complicated, particularly since it might work only if you have reasons to believe that the kid is going to be autistic. So the real issue is not really pregnancy. The real issue is how early can we determine or diagnose autism in babies? Mm -hmm. This is really the crux of the issue because we know that if you... Treat babies or young children with behavioral approaches if they're autistic, it's much more effective than you do it if you do it late. So the limiting factor is really when can you or we diagnose autistic children? For the moment, it doesn't seem to be very simple to do it before, say, I don't know, eight, nine, ten months, one year. Then my prediction would be that young babies diagnosed for having autism would benefit for a combination of a behavioral approach, like the one shown to be successful, you know, look at me, ah, my eyes and this sort of things, plus an agent like the diuretic we are developing. Because at the end of the day, what's going to be curing those kids or babies, it's not us, it's really society. In other words, the earlier it comes back to communication, the better this will be.
0: So is that the next step for your research? Is that the, what you're going to be looking into next? <laughs>
1: It sounds very simple. For the moment, what I'm going to do with animals is to investigate interaction between this and critical periods. In other words, autism is a very, very heterogeneous disease. Mm-hmm. We have thousands of possible mutations, and we have no idea what these are common. In addition, I happen not to be convinced by the importance of identifying novel mutations. If we want to understand and cure this disorder, we must work on brain development and see how This is deviated by insults, which could be genetic or environmental, which lead to autism. And only if you know how it's deviated could you hope repairing things. Because there is no way you would be able to cure the disease, even if it's genetic, which, by the way, is a minority. There is no way you can hope curing this by reinstating the correct gene or the correct protein. Why? Because most of these insults start in utero or during delivery, very early. By the time you have made a diagnostic, many things have happened as a consequence of your insults. And these things are the real cause of autism, not the initial insults.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Ezekiel Ben-Ari and colleagues write about a role for development in autism in this week's science. (laughs) Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on marks left by the Black Death on the human genome. The Black Death, or the plague, killed millions in Europe in the 14th century, and this huge die-off in the population is known to have affected many aspects of Europeans' lives. But what about their genomes? What might have happened to their genes, Dave?
2: Well, it turns out that our genes, or at least the genes of the people that suffered through this very deadly plague, may have been altered. And that's not terribly surprising. We know that that's sort of how evolution works. Evolution doesn't work on individuals. It works on populations. So if you have a population of people and they're facing a big catastrophe, something like a plague, I believe those people that are most adept to survive it will obviously pass their genes on to the next generation, everybody else will die, and that will alter the genome over time. And that appears to be what happened during the 14th century when the Black Death ravaged Europe.
0: So I really thought this was a unique approach. Can you talk about the method they used in the study to pick out which genes were important?
2: Well, you're right, and obviously the challenge here is we can't really go back in time to figure out what would happen to the genome, but researchers had a very cool natural experiment, and it happened because in the country of Romania, there was actually a group of people that moved into Romania about 1,000 years ago called the Roma people, and they're commonly known as gypsies. And what was interesting is when these people moved into Romania, they didn't really interbreed very much with the locals. So you have this very distinct genetic populations. You have the European Romanians, and you have these Roma people that are living in Romania. And what's really fascinating is both of these populations were impacted by the Black Death,
0: So when they compare these two groups that were both exposed to the plague but with different genetic histories, were they able to see, you know, positive selection brought about by the plague?
2: They did, and they actually saw very similar genetic changes in both these groups that were not seen in the ancestors of the Roman people that stayed in their original location not in Europe and what they found specifically that was really interesting was they found three immune system genes that seem to be very responsive to yersinia pestis which is the bacterium that caused the black death suggesting that the people that were impacted by the plague, these populations evolved a resistance to the plague, or at least those individuals that were most resistant to the plague were the ones that survived and passed on these genes that may have helped them fight off the Black Death.
0: And what about other populations around the world that ended up facing the Black Plague? Did the gene variants that they have also correlate with this experience?
2: So, yeah, other Europeans that also faced and survived the Black Death showed similar changes, in these uh, receptor genes. But people from China and Africa who didn't experience a black death or whose ancestors didn't experience a black death did not show these changes.
0: Very cool. Is there any other effect on the population of having survived the black death? I mean, were these genes all good news?
2: Well, it turns out there may be some side effects, actually, and you can imagine if you're ramping up your immune system to fight off a disease, a ramped up immune system isn't always a good thing, and it turns out that Europeans tend to have a more overactive immune system, which could potentially lead to more autoimmune Diseases than other people.
0: Next up, we have a story on voter psychology. Politicians often take advantage of voters' recency bias. In the U.S., it's called the October Surprise, an orchestrated event intended to sway early November elections. So, why is this such a reliable tactic, Dave, if everybody knows about it?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. It turns out, you know, if you've got a politician that's been around for years or maybe even more than a decade, it seems like voters really don't focus on that politician's entire record. They really think about, well, what have you done for me lately or what have you not done for me lately? And if you just raise taxes or maybe lower taxes, that could really influence whether me as a voter is more likely to vote for you or less likely to vote for you versus really evaluating your entire political record. Mm
0: -hmm. Without the ability to influence the behavior of politicians and then gauge voter reactions, how did researchers look into this in a systematic way?
2: Well, what they did was uh, survey. They actually surveyed 7,000 people, and they used 29 surveys. This was a pretty Herculean effort. It took two years. And the first thing they wanted to see was, do voters actually realize that they really have this bias towards focusing on the politicians' most recent record? And the researchers found that that's indeed the case. And not only is that the case, they don't even realize that they're doing it. So even when it was very clear to the researchers that the voters were doing it or these hypothetical voters were doing it, the voters actually didn't even realize they were doing it. They said, no, no, no I'm evaluating the entire record when it was clear they actually weren't. So
0: if they're able to show you know, that this was actually going on, is there anything that can be done to counteract this bias?
2: Well, what the researchers found that was really fascinating was voters really pay attention to the way information is conveyed. So if you talk about a change in family income over time, you use the actual income. So if you say maybe over three years, family income rose from $32,000 a year to $33,000 a year on average. Voters seem to be much more responsive to that and to really sense the trend versus if you say something like, well, family income increased 1.1% or something like that over that three-year period. And that suggests that the way journalists report on a politician's record could really influence how people vote. So if journalists use trends in terms of percentages, that may not resonate as much with voters as if they actually talk about hard numbers.
0: So it sounds like there is a solution out there. How likely is this to be put into practice?
2: Well, it really depends on, A, whether this holds up, and if it holds up, whether journalists and and other people that convey information about politician's record are willing to change the way that they actually present that information.
0: Finally, we have a story on the treatment of schizophrenia. People with this disease, schizophrenia, have the option of 20 or so drugs that they can take for their symptoms. But the side effects can be severe, and sometimes the medications just stop working. Now researchers are looking into a complement to pharmaceuticals, a type of talk therapy. So Dave, what is CBT?
2: CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's sort of what it sounds like. Instead of medication, patients that are experiencing schizophrenia or other mental disorders walk through their symptoms with a therapist. For example, if somebody's having hallucinations, the therapist might actually encourage them to either suppress them or not fight them off or tell them that what they're experiencing really isn't that unusual. What they're really trying to do is alleviate a lot of the anxiety associated with the symptoms of some of these mental disorders and achieve the same sort of calming effect that antipsychotic drugs would.
0: Mm -hmm. So what's the history of this therapy and schizophrenia?
2: Well, it's been really controversial. I mean, CBT, as it's known, has been shown to work for things like depression and anxiety, but it's been less clear if it really has an impact in schizophrenia. There have been decades of studies and analyses done, and they've sort of been inconclusive. Some show that CBT helps, some show that it doesn't help at all. So what researchers did in this new study was actually performed a clinical trial, and what they did was they divided patients that were schizophrenic, but none of them were taking their drugs anymore. Some of them were enrolled in a CBT therapy and others were just treatment as usual, which meant that they were monitored, but they really, really weren't given this intensive psychological therapy.
0: What was the outcome of this? How long were they in the trial and what kind of results did they see? It was a long trial.
2: CBT sessions lasted for as long as 18 months. And the researchers had a couple dozen patients in each group. And what they found is they found a small but statistically significant impact of CBT on schizophrenia. These patients tended to exhibit less psychotic symptoms over time than those in the control group.
0: So these results are kind of a small effect on the whole, though. Even though no one is recommending that people with schizophrenia stop taking this medication to jump over to CBT, Why might it be a good idea to have this as an alternative?
2: Well, one thing is that even though the effect was small, it's actually similar to effects that have been seen with antipsychotic drugs. Hmm. The other problem is that antipsychotic drugs can have some serious side effects. They can cause uncontrollable muscle movements, serious weight gain, higher risk of heart attacks. Plus, a lot of patients just don't maintain their use of these drugs. They tend to stop taking them over time. So doctors are really looking for an alternative that patients might be much more likely to adhere to. And and again, one that may have less side effects. And CBT, if it really does prove as effective or even more effective, that antipsychotics would be a really good choice.
0: Okay. So what else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about resurrecting a long lost species of beaked whale. The species has always been with us but we've just realized recently that it has been with us. And we've got another story about how fish may be responding to an increasingly acidic ocean due to climate change. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how the Great Barrier Reef is becoming a sludge repository. Also a story about an unauthorized clinical trial that took place in Spain. And finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science. This week's Science Live is about alternative medicine and modern medicine, and whether they can work together to treat patients. And next week, we'll be running Science Live from the AAAS meeting in Chicago. We have three live chats lined up, one on the interplay between science and religion, another one on the cities of the future, and finally, a live chat on the science of solitary confinement. And we'll be doing a lot of other coverage from the meeting, including daily news stories and a new video series 14-second videos with scientists about the coolest science fact they know. So be sure to check out all of our coverage on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, coverage of the annual meeting, and the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.